Accomplishment Coaching is proud to present the following fine programming. Accomplishment Coaching, where coaches lead and leaders coach. AccomplishmentCoaching.com. Welcome to The Coaching Show with your host, Master Certified Coach, Christopher McCollum. Uh, thank you, my dear listener, for uh, joining us. It's an extraordinary conversation. Today we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion. We're going to be talking about uh, about the cultural competencies that coaches need, among other things. Let me introduce you to our in-studio guest co-host. My name, of course, Christopher McAuliffe, Master Certified Coach, because you have to say it that way. Uh, this is Alex Terranova. He is, you can find him on The Dream Mason. He's the Dream Mason podcast. Uh, or you could go to the Instagram. It's very popular. Uh, in, uh, Inspirational Alex on Instagram. Hello, sir. How you doing? I'm good. What uh? What uh? What have you been doing these days? What's your I'm got your the, attention? I, I'm having the best week ever. Um, now I'm best, jealous. Yesterday was the best day. It's been the best month. It's just things are going well, uh, and I'm and I'm specific. I mean, I could talk about my whole life, but like really, in in my coaching practice, just oh. things have just been just up and up and up and up and up. Okay, well, tell us, give us a little tidbit, because just hearing yeah, that your yeah, yeah, yeah. life is great makes us feel bad. Um, well, so uh, this month, and we're only halfway through it, is the best financial coaching month I've ever had. Excellent. Launches on you. <laughs> I hit some goals that I, I, I've i been wanting to hit, but I, I didn't know that I would. Uh, I've work, been working really hard and, and practicing and trying to break things up to, to get over that next hurdle. Nice. Um, yesterday was the best one day I ever had in my business. In what measurement? Um, money measurement. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I... I, I I don't. I wouldn't say I relate all my success to it, but it's the way I measure the business Clear. is simply through money. Um, and last month was the best month before that. So you know, I love when I I can show myself that things aren't a fluke and it's consistency and you know doing the work and doing the practices and you know doing the things that I was taught and learned and and not doubting the process. I think for me, for me, that's the toughest part. Um, I think the next big breakthrough would actually be to not have these swings of I suck or I'm a winner based on money, right? <laughs> well, b based on money, based on how my clients are doing, based on how many people listen to the podcast, you know, I think how many likes the likes aren't as, as much. It's like when I look at the downloads, you know, it's like how many people are actually getting I mean, my intention is to provide value. So if, if people aren't downloading or listening to the ex expectation that I've made up in my head, you okay. Know. Now, one of the things that frequent listeners are aware of is that you've got a, a sweetheart a relationship mm -hmm. that is uh, sometimes challenging for you. So I'm very excited to hear about this success. What's happening in the relationship world? Are you guys settling in? Is it uh, is it what's happening? <laughs> the relationship is cha is is challenging. Um, but, you know, I think we're both. It's probably the most grown up, and I am saying, I mean, what does that mean anyway? Because a lot of grown ups aren't very grown up. But uh, you look at me. I feel like it's the most mature relationship I've been in, in the sense of even the challenges we have, we're talking about them. Mm -hmm. We're we're getting open, we're vulnerable, we're sharing the things that don't work, that do work. Um, and I think for the first time, at least in my life, we're looking at like the future and going, hey, do we, you know, do we want the same things? Are we on the same path? Because it's better to do that at six months, then maybe t wake up 10 years later and go, oh my God, we don't have anything in alignment that we actually want. Um, and so I think 
that's that's been the biggest thing i think that's the most heartbreaking thing is you fall in love with somebody you want to be with them and then you go wait a minute you you looks you want to go to detroit and i want to go to miami mm-hmm. How, can we create a, a win-win here or is it just like it's not a good fit i think that's the most challenging piece yeah i feel like i'm talking to your pr person what's the actual issue <laughs> uh it, it's that i mean she she wants a life um she owns a ranch she's a, she's a lawyer she has a, a a giant ranch and rides horses and the rancher lawyer and I like she it. wants she's looking for you know one of the, one of her dreams has been to be with somebody who would do all those things with her all the time right and you're not that guy and i like doing it sometimes but not all the time yeah and so she has to decide you know for herself is is she okay not having it that way all right um and I think for me, you know, I really would like to be with somebody who is really um, wants to grow themselves, work on themselves, not because I say they need to, but because they actually, they would want to. And um, no and interest. I, she's got no interest. No, no, she does. She's actually curious. She's she's visited accomplishment coaching a few times. She's gone to landmark with me a few times. She's done sample sessions with coaches uh, all at her own curiosity. All right. Um, and I think, but for me, it's like a, hey, I want to be with somebody who does this work on themselves to grow themselves because I want to grow with somebody. All right. And it, so, okay. yeah. well, I feel, I feel a lot more connected to you now. Thanks for sharing all that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I want to let our listeners know that uh, in addition to <laughs> my prying into people's personal lives, uh, one of the things that our intention is here is that, you know, I've been a coach for 25, six years, and um, and uh, you've been a coach for four, correct? It's like the middle of my fourth year, fourth yeah, four yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we, our intention is to get sort of a balance of you're a, you're a man of a certain age, I'm going to say 32. Wow, I love it. 37. Really? 37. Yeah. Never and, been married. And I'm, uh, you know, 20 years older. So uh, we've got some different uh, uh, perspectives, and that's going to come in handy today because today, as I said, we're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion with an expert on that. Anything else that people need to know? Let's see. Uh, We've had our conferences, I think, uh, coming up next are the fall conferences, which is the Capital Coaches Conference in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And, uh, of course, the ICF is having their Converge Conference this year in Prague, Czechoslovakia. So if you need a tax-deductible reason to visit Prague, you should go to that conference, as I am. Are you going? I am not. Dude. I know. Prague? My, my like best friend is speaking. I feel bad saying it out loud. Uh... <laughs> Okay. Um, by the way, I thought I was your best friend. We'll talk about that later. Are you See, speaking? No. <laughs> I'm speaking right now. Let's uh, get to... So, uh, sorry, how do the people find you? The Dream Mason? TheDreamMason.com. Okay. Uh, they can email me if they're if they're really a go-getters at Alex at TheDreamMason.com. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, being here. It makes a difference for me and for our listeners. All right, let's get to it. Our uh, First, I think our only guest for the hour is going to be talking with us about diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's an expert in the field, a leadership coach, and a nationally recognized speaker and strategist. She regularly consults with nonprofits, schools, and businesses to improve their organizational climate for their workforce and all that they serve. She's the founder of Inclusive Life and co-founder of the Lee Bayard Group LLC and Black Movement Law Project. She's an attorney. For almost a decade, she served as president of Trans Africa, working with leaders across the globe to advocate for a just <laughs> U.S. foreign policy. That was a, in a different time, I'm assuming. Nicole is a prolific speaker. She's given testimony to the U.S. 
uh, Congress, the United Nations, and other international bodies. She's been a commentator on CNN, MSNBC, NPR, and BBC. She's won numerous awards. She's an attorney, an intuitive coach, and we are delighted to welcome to our microphones from Washington, D.C., Nicole Lee. Hello. Hi, how are you? We are well. I'm uh, going to ask, wave at my technical guy to, to amp up the volume on your voice. Nicole, in addition to our riveting conversation about Will Smith movies and which were the best. Riveting, <laughs> riveting. Yes. Good You're an, extra an extraordinarily accomplished person. We should point people to how to reach you because when I tried to look up Nicole Lee, apparently uh, in your spare time, you're making handbags. I, yes. Yes. In my spare time. <laughs> Gosh, if I could get the revenue from that. Right. Yes. And the, the Nicole who makes handbags is much more famous than the human rights coach Nicole. <laughs> All right. So we there, should there's we have that in common. So there's a model <laughs> named Alex Terranova that if you Google Alex Terranova, he he's taken over Google. And it's quite upsetting because he seems like he might be better than me in I, every way. <laughs> I thought you were him. I, I wish. Uh, I, could I mean, get, he's 10 years younger. He's, you know, get the real one in here. It's, it's frustrating. Right, let's get back to Nicole. So, um, Nicole, uh, you're an extraordinary woman with an extraordinary history. Will you give us some of your just to just to sort of establish some credibility, so to speak, with our listeners? Give us some of your proudest moments in terms of the work that you've done. Oh my goodness. Oh, proudest moments. And, you know, when I was a young pup lawyer, I had the honor of working with a very small uh, law firm in Cape Town, South Africa. Mm. Now, it had been the law firm that had represented all the prisoners during apartheid in Robben Island. And for those who aren't familiar with Robben Island, Robben Island was where Nelson Mandela was kept for yes. most of the time that he was in prison. So it was kind of a a small little engine that could law firm that decided to sue De Beers, mm. the diamond people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and decide to sue them, not just in South Africa, but you know their international conglomerate for uh, sulfur dioxide contamination. And um, working on that case and working with people who frankly were making less than $2 a day, but still being able to demand to a large company that their rights be served was really a great moment for me. Um, I think another really proud moment is in running TransAfrica, the organization that you mentioned that I ran for almost a decade. I was able to meet all of these just civil rights giants, many of whom are now elderly folks, right? Mm -hmm. But got to really almost sit at their feet, if you will, and learn from them. And one of them is this amazing man, um, and I talk about him a lot in my leadership work because most people don't know his name. They may know, you know, Martin Luther King or mm -hmm. Malcolm X or Rosa Parks. But the person, one of the people who really funded the movement, who provided its strategy was this man named Bill Lucy. And when Bill Lucy was maybe like uh, mid-20s, he was in Memphis, Tennessee and saw how sanitation workers were being treated. And so he created a campaign around um, their work and called his very, very good friend, Martin Luther King, and said, I need your help on this. And so Martin Luther King was a part of that sanitation strike. And, you know, if you remember that he was killed in Memphis supporting that strike. A week later, Coretta Scott King came to lead the march there. Mm -hmm. And in part because of how important it was and because Bill Lucy, um, even at, in his 20s, was such a giant. And he ended up being very good friends with Nelson Mandela, and so I worked with him to commemorate Nelson Mandela's life in the United States. And we ended up doing this 
vast quasi-state funeral at the National Cathedral in Washington, right? So when presidents die, oftentimes they are um, commemorated at the National Cathedral. So we were able to give a service like that um, to Nelson Mandela, but alongside the civil rights giant. So, you know, so many different opportunities. And I've worked with people around the world that whose names will never be famous, but I've seen real courage up front, literally people standing in front of machine guns and tanks and all of those things to stand up for their rights. Um, and just knowing them and being able to learn from them has really been my greatest honor. Beautiful. Thanks so much for sharing that. And thanks for the important work that you're doing. Thank you. We've talked here uh, a couple of times this year already about diversity and inclusion. One of the things that I've shared uh, a couple of times is that, you know, I, I was privileged to go to the EMCC, that's the European Mentor and Coaches Council, I think it's called, uh, the conference that they held in Dublin this year. And they um, had one breakout session on diversity and, and inclusion. And the 12 of us that attended, you know, basically were a bunch of people that agreed, a couple of people of color, and you know, sort of sat around agreeing with each other for, you know, whatever the breakout session was, 90 minutes, and then broke up. My sense is that that's not uncommon. Uh, in contrast, I want to shout out and give credit where credit's due. The Association of Coach Training Organizations, the group, uh, you know, the sort of trade group of people who run coaching schools, had a conference this year also in June in Victoria, B.C., not a place necessarily known for its right. diversity and inclusion. Um, but in Victoria, BC, all of these, you know, mostly silver haired people who've run coach training schools for years uh, came together. And the whole topic driven by their the president of ACTO, Hallie McNabb, was diversity and inclusion. And everybody was sort of... Uh, rooted into different breakout sessions, but every single breakout session was about diversity and inclusion. And Hallie's avowed purpose in this, as she came on this show and shared with us, is she feels like the way to really impact the culture of coaching is right at the beginning when people get trained. Yes. Uh, that's a lot of information, but I'm eager to hear what your perspective is on diversity and inclusion, sort of the current state where we are now as, a, yeah, as an industry. No, that's so, it's so important. And I think that as an industry, um, having been a coach, I'm kind of a newbie coach like Alex. I've been a coach for five years. Mm. Um, and I have even in the last five years seen a bit of a shift, but, um, the shift is almost still a rumbling, right? So in one of the reports that came out about coaching around the world, um, most indices of identity were left out. Right. Mm -hmm. So so citizenship was mentioned, how many coaches we have in the United States, how many coaches we have around the world. But the identities within the countries weren't mentioned. And that's an indication that we still have a far way to go when we think about um, what does identity, what does diversity, what does inclusion mean in coaching? What I'm seeing is a rumbling from both coaches and clients. So coaches who are saying, I'm missing something. Right. So I'm seeing my clients. I am asking powerful questions. I am using deep listening. And yet I'm not sure that I know what I should be listening for. Right. And then I hear from clients. Um, I love my coach, but sometimes I feel like I have to perform for my coach. Mm -hmm. 
And when I get down to kind of the nitty gritty of it, oftentimes it is that we don't know what we don't know. And it's so important that ACTO is, is doing the work that they're doing and taking a stand on this. I worked with Hallie um, for a decent part of her uh, conference planning process. And this notion that, you know, coaches see themselves as doing good in the world. And I believe firmly in coaching. And yet, if you don't know, for example, that based upon one's identity, different things pop up in the workplace, different things pop up in one's personal life that may require the coach to have an awareness, right, of how that person is living their lives in order to actually ask powerful questions, in order to actually be fully present listening. So I'm seeing a rumbling. And at the same time, um, the resources are few and far between for coaches that want to learn more about what equity means, what does cultural competency mean, and what does that mean for their coaching business. So we've got some work to do. Christopher mentioned this and then, but it didn't get addressed, which is, and it's the thing that I notice in, in most environments is all the people that agree are in the same room talking about how they agree and why things need to be better. And then all the people who disagree are off in some other room <laughs> right. talking about why things are actually, I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. I'm not actually in that room, <laughs> but I, I, I don't want to put words in their mouth. That's not fair either. Um, but I think for me, how do we actually get, we become like, not just like politically, but as human beings, just so divided that we struggle to be in rooms with people that we don't agree with. And to me, it doesn't seem like change will ever happen if all the people that I agree stay together and all the people that disagree with them, but agree with themselves have their own area. I mean, we might as well just segregate each other by our beliefs, which just seems like what's happening. How do we actually get us together to have something change. No, I hear what you're saying. And I think, I think two things are happening. I think the first thing that I will say for many, I'm going to speak about just a few groups for a moment. And there are other groups um, that certainly this could apply to, but for women, for people of color, right? Men, women, um, and transgender folks of color. And there has over the last five years been a real, uh, almost collective understanding that um, there are certain sorts of conversations that frankly we may not just be in, we're not we're not willing to have anymore and in in ways that are comfortable right so um even even at the acto conference there were conversations that occurred where people said actually no what you're saying um really violates my dignity right? That's, that's my, that's my take on it. It violates my dignity. So I don't want to have that conversation. So that certainly is a part of the divide almost for self-help, self-care, personal reasons. A lot of folks are saying I'm opting out of conversations that make me have to prove that I have a right to be in this room. Now that, that actually is a shift and, and some people don't recognize that as a shift, but I will tell you that I, I certainly was raised in an era, era and was a lawyer and an advocate in an era when um, it was almost incumbent upon you, it was incumbent upon me as a woman of color to basically do all of the work I was to do and to also tolerate the fact that I would have to prove that I had a right to be in the room. That's a lot to juggle. And that's actually one of the things that coaches should be aware of as they're working with people with different identities. So that's a part of what feels like um, 
a division because people have kind of saying are saying now I'm standing my ground. Um, I, I want to be in conversations that appeal um, to my sense of self-worth. But the other thing is this, because, because of that phenomenon and because of what is going on in our society, mm-hmm. uh, many folks feel challenged, um, like they've never been challenged before about their assumptions about our society. So everything might be fine for me, right, um, from a certain vantage point. So for example, um, I'm heterosexual. I'm married to a man. Everything's always been fine with with a woman being married to a man. So I don't necessarily have to see that there has been discrimination before because everything's been great for me. Mm-hmm. But if I am confronted with the realization that actually for some people it has been not only difficult but deadly, I have choices. And oftentimes people opt out of the conversation because it's uncomfortable. It challenges who they think they are. And so what I encourage people to do that see themselves in um, in a situation where uh, they are the 15 in the room talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? What I, what I work with a lot of my clients on is thinking about what are the open doors? What are even the open or the cracked open windows with the folks that aren't in the room to begin to have those conversations? What are the fears that they have about being in those rooms, right? It, they're uncomfortable. And I, I can imagine both of you have been in rooms where these conversations have been had and you personally have felt discomfort. What have you done with that discomfort? What are the stories that you can tell about how even in the midst of discomfort, you've been able to contribute and how has that contribution furthered the conversation? So, you know, it's, you hear a lot in, in, um, in organizations or in groups of folks that are talking about racism, they'll say, well, white folks need to talk to white folks. And that's actually very true. Um, Oftentimes when you're talking about race, for example, um, the hardest people to talk about, uh, talk to, excuse me, to talk to are not the racist on the outside, right? The folks that you barely know, but it's the folks that have racist ideologies in your family um, that are close to you, friends. Like those are the hardest conversations to have. So it takes a level of comfort with vulnerability to have those conversations. And that's what I encourage folks because you can multiply a 15 person room by so many if we're willing to have those tough conversations and talk about discomfort. You know, it's a, it's an unanswerable question and so important in our society. One of the things that I know is that as a, as a white male of a certain age with silver hair, the, uh, okay, white, the, um, (laughs) the, there's, there are assumptions about me immediately, right? I've been in rooms where people of people where I spoke and my political leanings are very much to the, you know, aggressively to the left. And yet people sort of attribute a whole set of beliefs and understandings to me. I've also been in rooms where I've made an egregious mistake unknowingly, right? In terms of inclusion and diversity, right? Where I've said something that was offensive without even knowing that it was offensive. And often we can't clean it up and, and, you know, or explain who we are until and unless somebody actually challenges us, right? Until somebody says, hey, what you just said makes me uncomfortable or makes me think that you aren't uh, inclusive of me and my community. Then we can actually apologize and clean it up and, oh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea that what I said, you know, created that. But at the, but it takes so much courage for somebody to stand up and say, hey, what you just did violated, what, you said it so beautifully, violated my dignity. Um, at the same time, I'm sure that people who 
feel that way get tired, tired of, you know, educating the rest of us <laughs> and saying, you know, hey, knucklehead, that's offensive. Uh, what's your, what's your, how do you work with people in organizations? Because I'm sure there are those that are willing to be courageous and say, hey, you've just violated something, get tired of doing that. And the rest of us sorely, desperately need it. You know, what's so interesting is oftentimes when I work with organizations, I will get this, um, I'll be given information that there's, you know, a few people that are quote unquote problems, right? Mm -hmm. That they are constantly critical. They're constantly negative, that they're not team players, right? And one of the things that I've noticed over a decade of working on diversity and inclusion issues is very often those are people who have gone, gone unheard about some of the very issues they're discussing and describing. So they've had the courage to say, hey, um, you know, what you said isn't cool. And they've been labeled, right? That, that, that feedback has not been um, received well. It hasn't rece been received positively. And it's not just the feedback that isn't received well, then they are not received well. So even if they're great at their job, mm -hmm. they're perceived, right, as being problems. And that has a lot to do with implicit bias. It has a lot to do um, not just with diversity and inclusion issues. It also has to do with management issues that um, you see in a lot of organizations. But yes, I have a lot of clients that come to me that are just exhausted. They are exhausted. And, you know, of course, I find out the intricacies, you know, of their work. They tell me a little bit about their work. But very soon, it becomes an issue of not their skill level, not their ability to perform their jobs, but it's literally their lack of ability anymore to take in microaggressions, right? Microaggressions are like small things that people say that are not necessarily intended to be um, inappropriate or offensive, but are inappropriate and offensive and have a great impact. In fact, there's been a lot of studies done on people of color, in particular African-Americans, Latinos in the United States. And what they are finding is that microaggressions are actually causing physical ailments. So high blood pressure, um, diabetes, poor health choices, poor lifestyle choices, because you can imagine one is walking through the world attempting to do their job or what they're passionate at, but they have these this incoming all the time. One, um, one artist did this wonderful video where it said, you know, microaggressions are like mosquito bites. So if you get one once in a while, it's no big deal. It itches a little bit. But some people are getting a hundred microaggressions a day, so a hundred mosquito bites. And so this is why people become tired. And um, when, an, when a mistake is made, as you mentioned, Christopher, like someone makes a mistake, right? And they say something and, and their, their intent is good, but their impact is bad. Oftentimes, some of the heat they're getting isn't just because of what was said, but it's because of a personal history that that person or those people may have had in hearing those things time and time again. And, you know, there are ways in which I walk into a room and there are some rooms I walk into and people la label me a minority, quote unquote, immediately, right? Because I'm a woman, because I'm African-American, et cetera. There are some rooms I walk into, though, then I'm privileged, right? I'm a lawyer, mm -hmm. right? So there's a class issue there. Um, I'm a coach. I'm a leader. Um, and when I am experiencing those rooms through identities that have privilege, one of the things that I personally do and I encourage folks to do is really take feedback from that position rather than from the position that, hey, um, 
you know, you're picking on me or I'm oppressed too, but really understand the lens that folks are using um, as they are experiencing you. And as coaches, it should be something actually that comes pretty naturally for us over time. Um, unfortunately, though, so many coaches don't know what they don't know. So they're not actually um, aware right, that some of the ways that they're interacting even with their own clients um, may be de detrimental to that coach-client relationship. Sometimes, um, I think, well, with with Christopher, it's it's a really, you put it in the space, like, you're very open. Like, you actually want people to right. voice that courage, which is, and there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people, right, like, I would actually rather be told that I said something that wasn't okay and have the opportunity to clean it up. Right. Um, and I know I do often probably just unaware. And, and I love the opportunity to, to build a way more powerful relationship by per, somebody having the courage. And then we get to forge a new relationship based on the cleaning up and mutual respect. But there's so many people that actually aren't willing to be open to the courageous thing, where as in that has to be, you know, even more exhausting. And I find that it, like as a coach, I'm look, I'm a white male and at 37, you know, I, I don't, I often try to play the opposite side. Like I often try to play the side of as if I were a minority to see like how the conversation would go different, like put my myself in somebody else's shoes. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I often get is people are so defensive like it goes right to defensiveness and justifications and they're actually not open to the cleanup or hearing the other person's side. How do you how do you work with your clients when they when they're in those situations that it's not a Christopher but they're right. it's it's much more challenging. You know, it's it's really surprising like how much like most of my clients are experiencing that in one way or another and it impacts um a lot uh, like the totality of their lives, even if they're just really experiencing that in their personal lives or just experiencing it in their professional lives. One of the things that I talk with folks about is knowing your audience, right? So um, if it's a workplace situation or it's a family member, um, you know who you're talking to, you know what your past experiences have been. Now that doesn't mean that you make assumptions, right? You still wanna leave the door open. Um, for there to be change. And you want to balance that with the understanding that this person um, has shown fear before, right? This person has shown um, dismissiveness before. Mm. And so, so that you walk into conversations knowing that um, that dismissiveness and that fear is not something that you're going to take on yourself. Right. And and a part of this is it goes back to socialization. And I'm not going to get too much into it because it's, it's you know, we could go down the rabbit hole on socialization. But one of the things we have to remember is that in our society, all of us, all of us have one or two or a few identities that are not privileged in society. In fact, that we're oppressed for. Um, and sometimes people say, oh, no, it's all privilege for me. And I say, well, just wait. Because like, we all age, right? And we know <laughs> oh, in our society, well, let's be real though. In our yeah. society, we don't privilege elderly people. We have all sorts of euphemisms to say that elderly people basically shouldn't contribute, right? Like that, This is my they're, show they're, now. Get out of here, Christopher. <laughs> yeah. I'm taking this thing over. Right? I'll just take uh, off now. See ya. <laughs> but we all, we all um, have those identities. What we have to remember, and this is, this is not Nicole Lee's theory. This is a well-worn, both uh, psychologist, 
psychological and sociological understanding that within those identities that don't have privilege, that are, that are oppressed, we actually learn from a very early age to acquiesce, to take on um, the beliefs, the negative often beliefs about that identity and about ourselves. And so oftentimes it has to be a balance between being open to a conversation, but understanding where the conversations have been. The other thing that I talk a lot about is thinking about not just identifying the words that are said, right? The nasty words that are said, but what's underneath it. Is it fear? Is it misunderstanding? Is it ignorance? Is it miseducation? And then figuring out what are the strategies to deal with that. Now, sometimes the strategy is just to say, hey, I, that is unacceptable. Sometimes the strategy has to be to reframe the relationship. And I see this a lot in toxic workplaces with clients that are just under microaggressions daily. That's likely not the right place for them because um, even if that person is going to change, right, especially if the person is, is um, in management or is supervising them, if they're going to change, they perhaps won't change because of the subordinate bringing it up. So the question is, like, really, what is the healthiest situation for you? Now, when we're talking, though, specifically about family members, I do really challenge this notion um, that um, we shouldn't be in constant communication with our family members who have, um, you know, negative discriminatory point of view, because we're really the ones that can change them. And I have experiences like that in my own um, life that have been um, both very difficult, but also transformative. Well, it's... It's a powerful, powerful topic. I'd like for us to uh, take a break. We've got some important messages to give to you. And then when we come back, we've got more with Nicole Lee. Um, uh, I want to send you to her website, NicoleLee.org. That's N-I-C-O-L-E-L-E-E.org. And it's just an extraordinary important, extraordinarily important and an extraordinary topic for us to address, not only here today, but you and your life. And we'd love to hear from you. You can always reach out and uh, find us here and, and contribute your ideas and thoughts to producer at thecoachingshow.com or and uh, producer at accomplishmentmedia.com. We'll be right back after these important messages. You're listening to The Coaching Show with our in-studio guest co-host, Alex Terranova. My name is Christopher McAuliffe and our guest today, Nicole Lee. Are you seeking to change your career to something that is both fulfilling and challenging? Do you want to help people reach their full potential and strive to achieve their dreams? Would you like to inspire those around you and help create a better world? If you're serious about a career change or just want to explore the craft of personal coaching, contact Accomplishment Coaching with locations across the country in Washington, D.C., Seattle, Chicago, New York City, and San Diego. Accomplishment Coaching is the leading institution in personal coaching. Our staff carefully monitors the entire program live during the training process and have met the strict standards of ICF International to achieve accreditation. Through a focus on quality instruction rather than endless modules of training, Accomplishment Coaching will guide you from your very first step all the way to becoming one of the finest coaches in the world. Visit AccomplishmentCoaching.com to learn more. Accomplishment Coaching, where coaches lead and leaders coach. Christopher McAuliffe is your source for the latest in the world of personal coaching. Whether it be speaking with such luminaries as Deepak Chopra or getting the newest techniques and innovation, The Coaching Show is always on the cutting edge of what's happening now. Tired of presentations with no impact, no inspiration, and no traction? Do dull speakers have you and your team disengaged and distracted by smartphones? Christopher McAuliffe brings energy, insights, and two decades of experience delivered with punch, humor, and heart. Your team will leave energized, uplifted, and with a sense of purpose. 
Visit ChristopherMcAuliffe.com to bring some heat to your next speaking engagement. M-C-A-U-L-I-F-F-E. ChristopherMcAuliffe.com. Welcome back to another edition of the Coaching Show, where we're just kind of finding our way here in the dark. Uh, uh, it's an extraordinary conversation we're continuing today with Nicole Lee. I also have an in-studio guest co-host, Alex Terranova. You can find out more about Alex by going to his website, thedreammason.com, thedreammason.com, or listening to his podcast, The Dream Mason Podcast, or by going to the Instagram, Inspirational. Alex. Um, also our guest, Nicole Lee. You can best find her at Nicole Lee. That's N-I-C-O-L-E-L-E-E dot O-R-G. That's Nicole Lee dot O-R-G. All right, Nicole, before the break, we talked a lot about, you know, people's sensitivities and the and the notion of bringing up uh, these important issues of diversity and inclusion and equity. If you could, let me ask you the magic wand question. If you could uh, wave your magic wand and give all of our coaches and leaders uh in attendance today, one thing to take on with regard to diversity and inclusion, one place to start, one thing to actually do today or tomorrow. Is there something that you would you would have all people take on or all coaches take on? Yes, um, absolutely. It would be, um, and, it's, and it's a big thing. It's a, it's a long-term thing. It would be the pursuit of cultural competency, mm. which I think is something that um, is really needed in our coach training, um, in our continuing education, but in understanding that our own cultural competency really changes our world. It really changes the world for our clients. It changes the world for our overall practice. Um, no one becomes a coach because they're trying to um, do harm in the world or don't, don't care about what's going on. And so the pursuit of cultural competency, just like we pursue staying curious and um, staying open and really listening is such an important part of the process. Um, if we want to be able to be coaches that can serve everyone. It's really great. It's, it strikes me as one of those things that's sort of more easily said than done. Like we have a high aspiration or ideal, and then there's brass tacks. Are there when you when people come to you and say, "What could I do? Where should I go to find out more information about diversity and inclusion?" Where do you send them? Like bookstore, library, uh, you know, <laughs> here come hang out with my family for a weekend. What's right? What's I mean, a good right. And there's place? so many. There's so many different ways to come at it. Um, I work with one coach that always says. How about go for six months and all of the books that you read for pleasure, have them be um, books that were written by women of color. And for some people, that's really hard. Um, they say, well, oh, I'd be missing out on so much. And her <laughs> response is always like, well, you have a lifetime of likely reading very few books or no books written by women of color. Mm -hmm. So there's small things that we can do and the purpose um, is really to open our minds to different perspectives and understand that our reality is actually very much based upon what our identity is. And that doesn't, because it's our reality, doesn't mean it's the reality for everyone else. I, my, my rule of thumb is one, to begin with oneself. 
right? Um, so often people get like a little bit of information about diversity and inclusion and they want to run out there and they want to change the world. And I, I totally appreciate the sentiment, but I also know that so much of it really comes back to where am I in, at in my own journey. I have a diversity, equity, and inclusion, a, a cultural competency journey that I'm on. I'm not done, right? I'm constantly learning and reading and um, learning from people um, that have very different life experiences from my own and really trying to integrate that information. You mentioned, though, another important point that I, that I um, do discuss. And so often people say, oh, this is impossible because of my age or this is impossible because of where I live. But I encourage people, just like when we were on the playground at six and seven years old, go make some friends. <laughs> like, and I mean friends, friends, like friends that you talk to on the phone or you text or you have coffee with, you talk about your relationships with, you talk about your aspirations with, and make friends who are not uh, an identity that you are used to being around. Um, and some people say, oh, that feels so um, like you're constructing, right? You're attempting to construct your life in a specific way. And yet here's the deal. Most of us have actually constructed our lives already. We've figured out through our implicit bias, who do we feel quote unquote comfortable with, who we think is quote unquote nice or kind. Some of that does have to do with our implicit bias around identity. And so it's really about coming out of our comfort zone and creating real relationships, not transactional relationships, not, oh, well, and you know, you all might find this funny, but this happens. A lot of people will say, well, my nanny is a person of color or my housekeeper is a person of color. Not, I'm not talking about relationships where there's power dynamics at work. I'm talking about someone who um, is someone who can purely be a friend and coping and dealing with the discomfort of having a friend that does have some different life experiences. And I mean, these are things that, that coaches I know talk about in, with their clients in a lot of different aspects of their lives. These are things that we also can do as long as we, you know, again, take our own advice and stay curious and think about um, what it will mean for our reach, what it will mean for our business and our effectiveness if we're actually open and able and fluent, if you will, in these notions of cultural competency. Mm. I love that. go make some friends. I actually have multiple <laughs> clients currently who have projects to make friends. These are successful, motivated, yes. driven people that have projects to make friends, just like they would have relationship projects. And one of the things that I've noticed is, and maybe it's social media, maybe it's as we grow up, I don't, I don't know, but like, we don't know how to do this anymore. Exactly. <laughs> it seems like we forgot. It's really true, right? And and after a certain age, especially, I, I tease my wife because she sometimes makes playdates for me with other dads, <laughs> yes. right? And I'm like, this is ridiculous, but I go because I don't know that many other <laughs> my I actually my brother just told me a story about how he met this guy through like uh, he was out with a, a few groups of other people and he's like man this guy was so cool I wanted to hang out with him he goes and it got to the time where everybody was starting to leave and I didn't know what to say I was like do I ask for his number right, yeah. and if he came he was like I felt like I was like back in the my brother's engaged he was like I felt like I was back in the dating world yeah and he and him and the guy had this very awkward moment where they exchanged numbers <laughs> It but, is awkward, though, right? what you're describing. It is super awkward. And, you know, I, I remember when I moved to Washington, D.C., I, I didn't really move here willingly. And yeah. it, it <laughs> Does anyone? Really, right, does. Okay, it, maybe the Obamas. And, do you, but, yeah. and do you stay willingly? Like, right. that's the other thing. But I, but I honestly, my at my time, my boyfriend, now my husband, said, like, 
we're going to go find you some friends. And it really, it changed Aww. my life and changed my experience. But it is, again, the vulnerability that we have to be able to show. I mean, the other thing, the, the pro tip, and I'm saying this kind of in jest, but it's also very real. If you have kids, that is also another way to try to go make friends. Because right, parents. all of us actually, I, I even folks that are afraid to have conversations about diversity and inclusion, Everybody wants their kids to be able to have conversations about right. diversity, right? <laughs> most people, I know there's there's a small set that we're, we're aware of in this country that don't want you, but most people do. Um, one of the ways that I know many of my clients, and frankly, I would attribute my children to some of the relationships that I have right now that have really opened my eyes to the experience that other folks have. And um, it, it's just important. So if, you know, borrow a child, <laughs> borrow a niece, <laughs> borrow a nephew. Do not steal one, people. Right. Don't. Yeah, please don't. Please <laughs> don't. But um, but it's it's so important. But we we do that because we know that they need the social contact. We know how important it is for them to practice, right? Being around people. It's important for us too. It really is. And it's a skill that gets rusty when we're just merely going from social media to going to work, to going home and watching Netflix. Like these are things that we also need to be practicing as well. Uh, can we touch on, I love that we just got into this. It was a little fun and different and probably unexpected. Can we touch on you? You said you've been a coach for five years. You were a lawyer. You've done all this successful work with all these successful people and in, um, in other areas. How, and I think that a lot of coaches don't, you know, they didn't graduate college and became a, become a coach. They transitioned from somewhere else or some other career, or some other journey. Right. What's been that process like for you? And how have you built up that, you know, the confidence and the, and the structure to create a powerful practice and as a coach? Oh, it, you know, it wasn't, um, it, it, it was definitely not the straight line, right? It's that circuitous path we, that many of us probably talk to our clients about. And for me, there are two things happening. One was I found myself coaching in these very unlikely places. Um, I had a coach, right? I'd had a coach as an executive at Running Trans Africa. I had had a coach. And I found myself in situations where I was doing human rights documentation um, where I was basically going through the motions of coaching and realized that this is it, it's a powerful practice that I wanted to be um, I wanted to be a part of, I wanted to be involved in. Um, just to give you a quick example, though, you know, how coaching looks for me is probably different than other folks. Like many of us, you know, we get on Zoom or we get together in person with our clients and our clients are, mm -hmm. um, you know, doing corporate work or doing really important leadership in the world. My most powerful moment coaching was actually in Ferguson, Missouri. Oh. Um, if you remember, um, it was November, the week of Thanksgiving, when the DA of um, St. Louis County came out and said that they would not be charging Darren Wilson mm -hmm. with, um, with the killing of of Mike Brown. And I was actually out there. Um, some of you may have been watching TV um, and seeing on the screen that there were protesters out in the streets and there were police. I was there documenting, I was a human rights documenter for a long time, and I'd been asked by several people to go to Ferguson to document because, quote unquote, Nicole knows what to do when there are tanks in the streets, mm -hmm. which was, you know, sad, but very true. 
And I remember at one point, the police started tear gassing the crowd that I was with that was actually extraordinarily peaceful. I was standing next to the CNN crew when we started getting tear gassed. And I started running um, like everybody else for our lives because we weren't sure what was going to happen. And I remember having to make a decision whether I was going to run with a whole bunch of kids with baseball bats they brought baseball bats to break windows, et cetera. Was I going to run with them or was I going to run in the middle of the street where the police were tear gassing? So I decided to follow the, the kids with the baseball bats. And I ran into an alley and I ran past them and they said, miss, miss, no, it's going to be safe here. I'm here. And I, even though like these are boys with baseball bats, you know, there was a part of me, again, that bias that I thought, oh, right. this is an unsafe situation. They actually led me and another attorney through a little gate, and then there was an alleyway, and we then understood what they were trying to do. They were trying to protect themselves between the buildings, and it would have been difficult for the police to get there. And so we sat there for about 45 minutes, and in that 45 minutes, I had the most powerful coaching experience as a coach that I ever had, talking to literally 14- and 15-year-old boys with baseball bats that my society tells me that are just throwaway, right? That they're going to be in jail and they're this and they're that. And yet had this really transformative experience talking with them about their lives and what they wanted to see in Ferguson and why, you know, them discussing why they were so angry and why they felt so hurt. Um, and still one of them I actually keep in touch with. He did some coaching with me for a while. Um, so one, so to answer your question, Alex, a part of coaching for me has been, I do coaching on my own terms. So I don't, I am not a person that will ever judge my coaching on the salary figures of my clients, for example, or how many hits my clients get in social media, or how glamorous they feel, or how, um, you know, how they've gotten that big promotion. I, I really, I really judge my coaching on very different things. And it has to, and then therefore that um, impacts who I coach, how I coach. So I have a program where I coach folks um, and then it allows me to do pro bono coaching with young activists around the country. And so, but that young activist part is as much for them, as much for me, actually it's more for me in many cases than it is for them because that is really in line with my values. So my transition, it's, it's a transition, but I've really had to take a lot of the flavor um, that I brought into it with me because I do truly coaching for everybody, something that should be available for everybody and every coach to be able to, frankly, you know, with tear gas all over their clothes, coach young people um, through tough situations. I've said this before. The one of the thanks, first of all, for sharing that. I was teasing uh, Alex because I'm. <laughs> Often, you know, uh, when we ask people about their journeys, it's not as riveting as what you just oh. shared. So thank you for that, because I could uh, it was almost visceral what it would be like to be in that situation. Right. You know, fear yeah. and and danger on many sides. Um, and thanks for being willing to, you know, leave your palatial mansion and go to <laughs> where the <laughs> you know, be on the streets <laughs> where human beings are and, you know, danger exists. The. The thing that I'm um, 
conscious of and that I, I reference a lot, and, and it's kind of sad because it's an older piece now, and I've only ever seen it once, is there was a blog uh, post on what used to be called Black Girl Dangerous uh, and is now BGD, I think, .org, uh, several years ago about calling in as opposed to calling out, right? That, yes. our, that our job in when it comes to cultural competency, when it comes to um, issues of, of equity and inclusion is to educate each other and take, you know, people with who are older and white haired like me or younger or, you know, have come from a racist ideology or who are just, you know, a little bit unaware of other cultures and and norms in our society and educate each other and do it with love and from a place of sort of common threadness as opposed to, you know, choosing teams, red team and blue team and, you know, right team and wrong team. Um, are there other resources for that sort of education, for that sort of reminder? Because it's a little bit embarrassing now to reference this, you know, five-year-old blog post once, right? Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's no, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's huge. And mm -hmm. it's a huge issue as we struggle and strive um, to live more inclusive lives and to figure out our way, right? There's no blueprint. Most of us did not have, for example, parents that were talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, regardless of our race, regardless of our gender. This mm -hmm. is not how the conversation went. Um, and this whole issue of calling out is something that I've spoken out on repeatedly, because I think that much of the call out culture has to do with unresolved trauma. And it's what we were talking about before, you know, when you've experienced microaggressions or out and out racism over time, um, your tolerance level becomes low, but that also does not mean that um, one should be abusive, one should be intolerant because they've experienced intolerance. So I love that piece about calling in and I actually still share it and I share other pieces like it. Um, but it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because that's actually why I created Inclusive Life, one of the, the main reasons. Inclusive Life is... Um, it is an online community and also it's different resources, but it is a place to have these conversations with an understanding that you're within a community where it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to call in. It's also okay to opt out and say, you know what, I don't, my job in this community is not to teach somebody what they said wrong or what they've done or et cetera and so forth, but I'm here for my own self-healing Whereas for other people, it might be that they're there and they're, they're in a space, they're in a mood where they can um, educate and with an understanding that we all need it. We all need it. It is not just, um, you know, frankly, uh, white folks that need to be thinking about these issues. There's also in many of our communities, other isms that come out come up that we all really need to be working on. Now, certainly white supremacy is a major issue and we're seeing that play out in our society very clearly right now. Um, and it's something that impacts us all. And so the issue is for me um, that we need more spaces where we are community-minded, we're willing to have courageous conversations, not safe spaces, right? Safe spaces really not something that really exists in the community but that we're willing to have courageous conversations that where we respect each other's humanity so much so, right? That when the call-in is necessary, we'll do it. 
And so um, it's it was really a response for me to what I've seen. You know, I've seen folks that are teaching classes that are really designed to um, guilt people, make people feel like they can never be enough, that they'll never be good enough, which frankly, to me, as an old women's studies um, major in college, <laughs> feels like patriarchy all over again. So it's it's almost, you know, patriarchy clothed in, in a, a person of color voice. I don't believe in that. I really believe, I believe in humans. Though, and I believe that when we know that we're in a space that is purposed, to be about us all getting better and us all really being as courageous as we can, really amazing things can happen. So that's why I created the Inclusive Life Community. I love it. And how do we find out more about that? So that is on Facebook and it is also on my website. Great, which is NicoleLee.org. Um, I got to I gotta ask Alex just because I want to know. So I took uh, one and a half women's studies courses in college. Did you take any? I've never taken a woman's studies course. I, was, I need to know how that half happened. Sorry. <laughs> well, well half exactly as you suggest. Like I went to go cr prove my uh, street cred in the feminist world. You know, this was in another decade, as we say, or maybe another right. generation. And so I was there to like prove in solidarity. I'm an ally. You know, let's uh, feminism. Yay. And um, man, so much anger. So much anger. Right. So I was a history major. Uh-huh. And my uh, my focus was on social problems in American history. Mm. So almost all my classes were studying slavery, racism, and Native Americans. Wow. So we, they didn't talk about women, you know, just the men, <laughs> male side of it. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, ki I'm kidding, but yeah. it, a different version of it. But yeah, I was, I, I, I had no idea what was going on, but I was fascinated with how we built a world on top of a mess, basically. Right. And then the and the victors get to write the history. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thanks for that. That was a total side move on my part just to get to know you a little better. Um, let's, uh, let's wrap up. Our time together has flown. And I so appreciate the work you're doing in the world, Nicole Lee. But I want to give you an opportunity to give us sort of a parting thought or a parting shot. If you had something to say to 50,000 or so coaches today, if you had a, a direction to send us or a thing for us to take on or a, a thing to leave us with to chew on a bit, what would it be? Well, one is um, I want to give an invitation um, to for coaches who are really interested in up-leveling their business around cultural competency. I'm here. I do a lot of work with coaches. I provide assessments for coaches. Um, I work with coaches and talk with them about their business specifically and what are the things that they need to improve upon. And so I invite um, folks to get in contact with me for that. Um, the the parting shot that I would give is don't let it go, right? Mm. I'm my fear, and I know it's the fear of many of the coaches that that you know, Christopher, is that um, our work will become irrelevant if we are not willing to change, if we are not willing to see um, that we actually are so much bigger than our assumptions as coaches. We are so much bigger than our own experiences. But in order to really see that we need to be willing to do the work of digging in and really fully understanding the experience of, of our colleagues, comrades, and clients. I love that. It would be so easy for most of us to just be like, well, I listened to that podcast, so I'm woke. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Thank you so much for that uh, important reminder and for the work you do. Once again, you can go to NicoleLee.org. Any place for people to start? Should we start with that assessment? Should we start with... Uh when we yeah, get to your um, website? You know, I have, uh, 
you know, the free 30 minutes that I know many coaches have just to talk about the different aspects of business. Of course, I focus in my coaching on, on cultural competency and the mini assessment is a great way to know um, where you, um, where are some of the potential blind spots you might have or where you want to begin the work. Beautiful. All right. Uh, so we can get a free 30 minutes with Nicole Lee. Go check it out, NicoleLee.org. Anything for you, sir, before we uh, go? No, I just appreciate the openness. And I really love the piece that you talked about family. I think that really hits home. Like it's a place that every single person can go practice and do work. We don't all have to be marching or doing things. You actually can just go do the work in your own circles. It was pretty cool. Totally. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's Alex Terranova. You can find him at thedreammason.com or on the Dream Mason podcast or on Instagram at Inspirational Alex. My name is Christopher McAuliffe, and I thank you, dear listener, for being with us, for sharing this important topic, and for your journey towards a more inclusive, more just, and uh, equal society. Thank you for listening. It's another edition of The Coaching Show behind us, and we will talk to you each week as every, every week uh, uh, next week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.